Well, once again, welcome to Grace. Uh, glad all of you are here today. I know I'm glad to be here. My name is Michael, the middle school and young adult pastor here. And uh, last week, we started a new series called Sola. And so we are talking about five, five-week series, five truths of the Christian faith. And sola is just the, the Latin word for alone. And so uh, we're talking about five alones that we find in Scripture. And uh, I won't test you guys. Uh, I'll do it along with you. But we had a sentence to summarize our series, if you remember that. So uh, if you know it, join in. Uh, according to Scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone through in for See, it's week two, and you guys already know it, man. There we go. Uh, throughout the years of church history, as, as Kevin talked about last week, throughout the years of church history, uh, not everyone, but a large measure of the church had gotten away from correct beliefs about what God's Word says. And that was until uh, around the early 1500s where uh, people began to have a greater, easier access to Scripture. And so they started reading their Bibles and they were committed to what God had already uh, revealed to them. And, and that charge was publicly led by a guy named Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest and who, along with everybody else, they're reading their Bibles going, wait, this doesn't line up. Like the Catholic Church is teaching this, but the Bible has this to say. Or they're doing these things and holding on to these traditions, but wait, that's not in God's word. And so Martin Luther went to a church in Germany and he nailed on their front door 95 theses or 95 things that he's saying, hey, we're getting these wrong. Like this is not what God's word says. We need to get back on track. And that formally began the Protestant Reformation. And, and again, there were always churches that stuck to God's word. It wasn't everyone. But there was still a huge emphasis on Christians to not be led by culture, to not be led by tradition or their own beliefs, their own opinions. But it was a charge to be led by what God has revealed to them in his word. And that's what we talked about last week, how it is through scripture alone that we find this out, that we go to scripture for truth, that it is authority to our lives. And so this week... We're talking about sola gratia, by grace alone. And so uh, grace, to give us a definition, like a foundation for where we're going, grace is God's goodness on those who deserve only punishment. God's goodness on those who deserve only punishment. And so that is unmerited favor. That means you can do nothing to earn it. In fact, if there's anything added to grace it like, takes away the essence of what grace is. Grace plus anything is not grace. Grace, and you add something else to it, it ruins it. And to, uh, to give us even more direction of where we're going, to kind of set uh, the morning up, I want to tell you guys a story about our music director, Tim Wilson. <laughs> All right? And when I say a story, I mean something that he did that I didn't like, that I blew it out of proportion, and here I am talking about it. So... Uh, you guys know Tim, he leads music here. Uh, it, the year was 2017, and he is fresh out of Texas, comes to Fremont, Ohio to work here on staff. And, uh, and the, within the first 
it might have even been the first week or first couple weeks of him working here, we all went to Casa Fiesta as a staff uh, to have staff lunch, so just the Mexican restaurant in Fremont. And we get there, uh, and they bring the best part of any Mexican restaurant meal, right? The chips and salsa. And you guys know this already, but let me just set the scene for you. Okay, when you get chips and salsa, you have two bowls. You got your salsa bowl, which is yours. No one else is involved in that. You can do what you want to it. No one else, you know, dips from that. It's yours. And then you have the chip bowl, which is more like a community chip bowl, right? That if those chips were altered in any way, it would impact the lives of others around us, correct? Okay, there we go. We get the chips and salsa, and, and Tim's sitting across from me, and I look over, and he is just dousing salt on those chips. And when I say dousing, I mean it was raining salt. And I'm like, Tim, what are you doing? Because I'll, I'll be honest, I'm going to confess some sin with you. I was mad. <laughs> I was outraged. I was like, what is it? So, Tim, what are you doing? And he looks at me kind of confused, like, I'm salting the chips. Why? And so I began to lay out my 19-point argument of like, hey, this is not okay. Like, first of all, you don't salt your chips before you try them, okay? But either way, nothing needs to be added to them. They're fine. And two, that's not your place. The other people are involved in this decision. Don't impose your salt on my food. And I was getting, as you can tell, because it's four years and I'm still not over it, but uh, I, was getting, I was getting so worked up that Ben, who was uh, one of the tech guys on staff at the time, Ben was like, Mike, are you okay? I haven't seen you this angry before. And I'm like, no, I'm not okay. This is ridiculous. And at this point, I'm mad at everybody at the table. I'm mad at the rest of our staff, like, hey, are we just going to allow this? Like, this is the culture that we're, we're setting up. I'm mad at Pastor Kevin for hiring the guy. I'm mad at, <laughs> like, this is, and obviously I'm mad at Tim. And I'm thinking, wow, this, mu this must be what everybody from Texas is like. Just inconsiderate. <laughs> if you're from Texas, I'm just joking. Uh, but as that's going on, Again, this is the first few weeks of Tim being on staff, so I'm still forming my opinion of him. And me, I'm big on first impressions. And so because of that, to this day, I don't like him. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. I love Tim. I'm glad he's here. He does a great job. I actually called him on Friday and was like, hey, do you mind if I tell a story? Remember when you wrongly salted those chips? And he was like, uh, you mean when you wrongly got upset about it? And I was like... Yeah, yeah, that's the time. And so I tell that story, not just to, you know, get my opinion out there over Tim's. I tell that story is much like that Casa experience. For me, I'm telling Tim, hey, don't add anything. Nothing needs to be added to them. They're fine. And in the same way, nothing needs to be added to the message of grace. In fact, if you add anything to grace, if you add any work or effort or you try to earn it in some way, shape, or form, it's no longer grace. And if you add anything, that means if, oh yeah, it's grace, we're saved by grace, but you know what? You also have to make sure you're in church. You have to make sure you're living a good life. You have to make sure you're baptized. You have to pray. You have to get, it's grace alone. And to help us understand that, I want us to go to Ephesians chapter two. If you have your Bibles, that's where we'll be. Uh, Ephesians chapter two, Paul is writing this letter while imprisoned, he is in Rome under house arrest, and he's writing to encourage the believers to grow in their faith, but also to be committed to each other. And he's promoting unity here. And in chapter 2, he gives us insight to what God 
does for us through salvation. And this is a well-known portion of the letter, if not the most well-known, and it's well-deserved because he shows us why it is by grace alone we are saved. And what Paul does is he's going, okay, yeah, we're going to talk about grace. We'll get there. But first, we have to understand who we are. We have to understand our condition, the state of our hearts, before we can appreciate and know what grace is all about. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, says, And you were dead in your offenses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and just referring to Satan here, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all previously lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. Paul says, hey, when it comes to understanding grace, this is where it starts, having an accurate view of ourselves. And he's writing, saying, all right, you got to know, first thing, before Jesus, you were dead. And most of us probably don't have differing definitions on what that means. We get it. Lifeless. And in this context, he means unable to help yourself. That, yeah, you may be physically alive, but you are spiritually dead. And because of that, you are alienated. Because of your sin, you are separated from God. And it says not only that, not only are you not on his side or following him, but it says you are following the ways of this world. This world that is uh, promoted and kind of energized, he says, by the prince of the power of the air or Satan. And so we don't think of ourselves that way. We're thinking, no, I wouldn't follow Satan. I wouldn't do what he wanted me to do. You know, even if I wasn't a Christian, that sounds kind of rough. But the Bible's telling us we lived in a way that opposed God. Our hearts, our minds are bent on doing wrong. And Satan's influence is not equal to God's. It's not even close. But he does have a strong grip and strong impact on our world today. And it encourages just us to oppose God. And it says that we also not only didn't follow God, we followed the ways of this world, but we fulfilled or indulged in the desires of our flesh. And the desires, the things that we want, they are innately evil. Like we don't naturally want good God-honoring things. And as a result, by nature, it says that we are children of wrath. And what that means is at one point, all of us were going to have to face the penalty of our sin if nothing was done about it. And we've all sinned. It says we've all fallen short of his standard. And we've sinned against a holy, perfect, eternal God. And so we deserve hell for our disobedience against him. We deserve an eternal punishment. And it's a tough yet deserving sentence. And there's nothing that we can do to earn it on our own effort. And viewing ourselves this way, like it's not all that enjoyable. Like we don't want to think of ourselves how maybe Paul is writing us. And maybe even when it comes to like people in general, we don't view them that way. Because I feel like we generally have a... uh, like an optimistic outlook on people. Like, yeah, people uh, are pretty much good. They just do bad things. Or you know what? 
I'll give, you, I'll give you that. A few of them are bad, but for the most part, we're good people. And that can often be how we view us and others around us. And we see the terrible people in the news, in our history books, and we go, well, I'm not like them. I'm not that bad. I mean, I haven't done any of the, the, the big sins. And sure, I'm no, I'm no Billy Graham, but I'm no Hitler. <laughs> like I'm somewhere in between. That's a wicked dude. Like he is someone bad. He's definitely more in line with Satan's agenda than I would. But the problem is we wrongly think that our hearts are any better than someone like that. And we wrongly think that someone else might be less deserving of forgiveness than us. And we think the problem is out there with other people. No, the problem is in here, in my heart, in our hearts, because sin is at the core of who we are. And the Bible says that the issue is that the reason we don't often view ourselves that way is because we compare ourselves to other people. But he's saying, hey, don't do that because verse 3 just as the rest, we are all children of wrath. Because if we're being completely honest, if you looked in your life, you could probably find, I don't know, five, ten people that if you compared your life to theirs, your good things to their good things, your bad things to their bad things, you could probably find ten people that you would categorize as worse than you. Like, right? Let's just be honest. We could probably find those people. But that is the wrong standard for us to use. Paul says we need to compare ourselves with God, who is the correct gauge of holiness. And you're going to find that his standard is too high to reach. What he's saying is that we are spiritually lost. And not lost like you're out in the wilderness, out in a forest somewhere, and yeah, maybe I'll find my way out. <laughs> The fact that we are lost, it cannot be remedied by human means, by our own effort. Again, the sin is at the core of our beings. And this picture that's painted of us, it's not all that appealing, right? I know I've spent the last five minutes cheering us up and telling us how great we are. But it's so important to grasp when it comes to understanding grace because we will not understand the value of salvation until we understand how sinful we really are. And I'll be honest, this is like before I uh, was saved, this was me. That I knew about Jesus. I knew that I needed to put my trust in him. I knew that he died on the cross for my sins. But I couldn't wrap my mind around this idea that man, like, I deserved hell for my sin. Like everybody, there's a people in my life that are way worse. I don't think I've done anything to deserve that kind of punishment. And I remember finally when it clicked for me, it was actually, I was in middle school. It was at Kalahari. And uh, by the way, Kalahari is back this year for 2022 in January. So make sure your student goes to that. Anyway, um, yeah, there we go. And so uh, I remember it was after the session. And I'll be honest, I don't remember who the speaker was. I don't remember what the speaker said. But I remember like after the session, 90% of the room had kind of filtered out. I'm in the front row and I'm just staring at the screen, the stage, and it clicked that I am lost. That I am not at peace with God. That I am more connected with God's wrath than I am God himself. And this picture of us, it looks bleak, it looks desperate, it looks hopeless. 
But verse 4 starts with two of the most beautiful words you will ever read in the entire Bible. You guys ready for it? Thank you, front row. All right. He sets up the scene and says, hey, we're lost. We don't deserve it. Verse 4. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You can put whatever you want before those two words. You can put whatever you want before, but God doesn't matter. That yeah, I have so much sin in my past, I've really messed up, but God. No, like you don't understand, I have done some bad things, I've hurt people, I don't know if I can ever forgive even myself, but God. Wait a minute, the, the first three verses just told us how bad we are and how much we don't deserve it. Very true, but God, that it doesn't matter. And it says that his mercy is too rich, his love too great. And that's the thing, that God is not obligated to do anything for us. He doesn't owe us anything, but he still loves us. And when it says the Bible loves us, it's not this like casual, non-committed, like, hey, yeah, I love you. When he says he loves us, he means it and he shows it. And the greatest form or expression of that love was seen as he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He means it and he shows his love. And because of that love, when we were stuck in our sin, dead in our sin, it says that we were saved by grace. And again, I want us to continue to kind of grow in our understanding of, of, of what grace is all about. Because he set the scene and we know that grace is God's goodness on those who deserve only punishment. It's unmerited favor. And he just spent three verses telling us how much we do not deserve it, that we're lost. And yet he gives grace and still chooses to love us. And notice in this passage who the initiator is. Like notice our part and then notice God's part. Notice our actions, which is not the focus, but notice God's actions. Because sometimes we want to act like we saved ourselves. Like, yeah, I know Jesus died for me, but I chose him. I decided to become a believer. Yes, but what did we do in this passage? Look at what we did compared to what God did. What did we do? It says we strayed, that we rebelled, we followed sin. It says that we were dead. And now what did God do? says that he made us alive. He saved us. And he rescued us from our sin and our punishment. And not only that, it keeps going in verse 6. It says that he also, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So not only are we alive, but he's saying, hey, we get to share in his glory. That our new citizenship is in heaven, which, you know, we can't um, go there now. But our citizenship is not of this world. It is a sure thing. And when he says that we've been seated with Christ in heavenly places, 
It doesn't mean literally, but it's a figure of speech showing the significance that, okay, if we're seated with, with, with Jesus, he's saying what's his is also ours, that we are going to share with him. And so if we are united with Christ and he is seated at the right hand of God, that's where we are. It's kind of like um, when you go to a wedding reception, okay? I'm sure, you know, this is pretty much wedding season. And if you're anything like me, you've probably been to a few weddings this summer, especially since 2020 was kind of a write-off. So 2021, the wedding year. But uh, if you go to the wedding, you celebrate with them, and I'll pronounce you husband and wife, and then you go to the reception and celebrate even more. And when you get there, usually you have an assigned table. And if you go to this reception, and there's a big difference on where you might be seated. If you are at the head table, it's a little more significant than if you were seated at table 19, right? Because there, uh, you're kind of in the back, you're farther away from the food, you don't even know you're sitting with like their aunt and uncle. It's like, okay, great, I need to be up there. But there's a big difference in where you sit because if you're at the head table, that means you are marked as one of the most important and closest people to the bride and groom. The, the closer you are to them, the better your seat. And if that's the case here, the Bible says that we are together with Christ. Galatians 2.20 says that, it is, that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's pretty close. <laughs> He says, we are saved, we are made alive. And he doesn't just put us anywhere. He says, no, you're at the head table, you're with me. You get to share in my power, in my glory forever because of our relationship. And so maybe you're reading this and going, okay, well, that is some great news. But why? Like, why would God do this? Why is he um, saving us? Why is he taking his creation that rebelled against him and dying for them and offering them grace and raising them to sit with Jesus in heavenly places? Is it just because he loves us? Like, I know that's true. I know that's good. But is that just because he loves us? Verse 7 tells us the reason why. He does all of those things so that in the ages to come, he might show the boundless riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God shows grace to us and for us, yes. But it's not just for our benefit. God's purpose in salvation is also for his sake. That God did this not only because he is great, because his character is great, but to show that his character is great. And so he wants to showcase his glory. He wants to show off his capability. After all of our running, after all of our desiring wrong things and sin and living without purpose and meaning, God wants to show us, like, hey, you need to be with me. God's trying to show us, hey, I am the one that satisfies. God wants to use our lives as an example to where he can show and he can prove that, man, look what I can do with, with my creation. That they wanted nothing to do with me. They rebelled. But look, I'm going to turn their lives. I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to save them. I'm going to make them alive. And they're going to be used for my glory. That's what God is wanting to do. And it's not selfish of him. I know it sounds like it. 
but it's not selfish because he wants the best thing for us. And the best thing for us is to live a life worshiping him. He wants to show for eternity the magnitude and the scope of his grace. And just in case you missed it, he summarizes in in verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace through faith. You did not do it on your own. It was a gift from God. Now, some of you also may be reading this and going, wait a minute. Okay, hold up, Michael. You, you were saying by grace alone, but it's not grace alone. Like you are saved by grace through faith. So we need to have faith too, right? And my response to that would be, we're going to talk about that next week. Uh, <laughs> but yes, we need faith. But faith is the means by which we receive grace. It is when we accept his free gift. And we can't accept something that's not first offered to us, right? It'd be like uh, me going into a job interview or, or us going into a job interview. The process hasn't really started yet. They haven't asked you any questions. But you walk in the room, shake their hand, and you go, I'll take it. Take what? What do you mean? I, I'll take the job. Thank you so much. I'm going to be so excited to work here. Should I take the corner desk? Can I get one of them nameplates that says Mr. Miller on it? Like, they're going to think you're crazy because they haven't offered you the job. Same way when it comes to faith and grace. Everything from first to last is grace and what God has done. That we didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. And because of that, Paul says we can't boast like we had a part in it. That we can't brag or we can't, because I, I, I know naturally we all kind of enjoy boasting on ourselves, right? We enjoy being successful and letting others know we're successful. But Paul is saying, look, we cannot do any of that because it is 100% God. It's all him. We didn't have a part in saving ourselves. And so when it comes to... Uh, what the gospel is all about, salvation for us by grace. I, I don't know where all of us are in this room spiritually. Some of us have uh, been saved for a long time. Some of us uh, maybe have not taken that step to trust in Jesus yet. And either way, we're glad everyone is here. But my fear is that some of us may have a preconceived idea of what Christianity is all about. That we may think, yeah, you know, I'm cool with Jesus and Christianity is good, but it just seems like a self-help religion. Like this whole idea of, yeah, you need to believe that Jesus died for you, but it's just do good, like be better. But the message of the Bible is not try harder. The message of the Bible is you can't. You can't, but God did. And that is what he is trying to get across to us, that he didn't come to give us a second chance or to give us a pep talk for this moral improvement. He came to rescue us, to offer grace. So we don't want to grow cold to the truth of what God has done for us and in us. Don't think that we earned it. Don't think that somebody else deserves it any less than we do. Instead, we should view ourselves as the person who deserves grace the least. Because we know what 
what our sin consists of, and we know that what we've done against God. You know, I, uh, I was reading a little more into Martin Luther's life. He uh, started the Reformation, and towards the end of his life, uh, I, like the last month or so, I believe, he actually went back to his hometown. And he went there to, uh, I believe, just figure out or kind of solve a crisis between two guys and he was kind of mediating between them and solve that conflict and so he did that and he preached a little while he was home too uh, but eventually he fell ill and he was on his deathbed and as he is moments away from dying or hours or I don't know how long it was but we have his last recorded words and again, this is someone who was committed to Scripture, committed to teaching it, to knowing it, to, to, to guiding others in God's truth. And as he is moments away, the last thing on his mind was grace. We actually see he wrote down on a scrap of paper found on a table uh, near his bed where he passed. Um, and so his last words, they weren't spoken whether he couldn't speak or just didn't want to, I don't know. But he wrote a few sentences on a scrap of paper. And the last few things that he wrote said this. It says, we are beggars. This is true. We are beggars. He is moments away from meeting his creator. And what's on his mind is the fact that we are so unworthy, but yet so welcomed to the presence of God. That he believed it didn't matter what we have done for him, but it's all about what has been done for us. That when we approach God, all we can do is hold up empty hands and say, God, it's all you. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to bring to the table. And that's the attitude that God, that, that God wants from us. And so this idea that we are beggars, welcome to the table of God, and he has displayed his love for us, Despite our brokenness, despite that we think we're entitled to this grace, despite that we are, uh, or that we think we're actually good people, despite all of that, he loves us. And he offers a gift of grace. And what did we do to deserve it? What did we do to deserve God making us alive? that he would die for us, that he would declare us righteous, that he would adopt us as children. What did we do to deserve that? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And when we understand this message of grace, that we don't deserve it, but God still freely gives it to us as a gift, things begin to change. It changes so many areas that we can apply directly to our life. When we understand grace, it changes how we view ourselves. That we understand that it's not about what I can do or trying to get to this level of righteousness, but it's not based on my performance. And so because I can't get there, I can never earn it. I certainly can't lose it. It also changes how we view other people. That we realize we are not better or worse off than anybody else. We're all in the same boat. And that everyone around us, they too are in need of grace. And so we get the opportunity to show that grace to them lived out in our lives. It also changes how we view God. That we are understanding of how great he is because he loved us not out of obligation, but out of generosity, out of his character. And he still chooses to do that. And we see what this passage 
talks about his grace, we see how boundless and limitless his grace actually is. And we see that everything we've done, all of our sins, our past mistakes, our shame, our guilt, all of it can be covered by his grace. It also changes and instills our attitude, our response to him, which should be gratefulness. When we compare what we deserve to what we can receive, we can focus on that and being thankful instead of our worldly circumstances. And we can have joy and just be grateful that he offered this to us, even though we've done nothing to deserve it and everything to not deserve it. And the biggest thing that it could change for us when we understand grace, it could change our eternity. In, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And what Jesus means by this is that to become a Christian, it doesn't mean that you have to have it all together. In fact, they're complete opposite. Because to be poor in spirit, it means you acknowledge where you fall short. And this word poor that he uses, uh, this word poor, it doesn't have the idea of just being like lower class. It doesn't just mean, yeah, I'm struggling to make ends meet. It means utterly impoverished, completely dependent on others. And it has this idea of being beggars, that we have nothing to offer God. But it starts with acknowledging the reality that God, I am spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ. But with Christ, once I accept his free gift of grace, that we are made alive. And he does so many things. He saves us, he raises us to be with him forever. And so if you have not made that decision, if you're going, yeah, I, if it were decided right now, I don't know where I'd be for eternity, we would love to talk to you about that and really what it means to understand and accept this gift of grace. And so myself and some of the other pastors will be in room one. We'd love to talk to you after the service, but, but don't grow numb to the truth of what God has done for every single one of us, that he has offered and made a way in spite of our sin and brokenness and the fact that we are poor in spirit and we have nothing to offer, we're beggars, God extends grace to us. And we can live in that. Let's go ahead and pray as we, uh, as we wrap up. God, we come to you this morning and we are so thankful for who you are. Because God, if you, if you look at our situation, there is no reason that we should be given grace. We don't deserve it. We haven't, we haven't done anything to work towards it, to earn it in any way. But God, you still choose to love us and we are th so thankful for that. And I pray that we would understand that in this room, that we would have a greater understanding of your grace, that that is the only way that we are saved because of what you have offered and done for us. And I pray that we can live out that truth in every area and every day of our lives. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.